0: Tonight is from Isaiah 63, 7 through 14. Isaiah 63, 7 through 14. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which He has bestowed on them according to His mercies, according to the multitude of His loving kindnesses. For He said, Surely they are My people, children who will not lie. So He became their Savior, and all their affliction He was afflicted. And the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and His pity He redeemed them, and He bore them and carried them all the days of old but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old Moses and his people saying, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the deep? as a horse in the wilderness, that they might not stumble. As a beast goes down into the valley and the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest, so you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. Amen. Uh, In our New Testament text uh, speaks of some of these same things, how God leads and preserves His people through His Spirit's power. Romans eight twenty six through 30. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called Whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Praise be to God for his word. Pray now with me that he would bless it to our hearts. Lord, we pray that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would grant us. What we are not, you would make us. Even into the image of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of your Spirit working through this Word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If someone asked you, uh, what is it like to be a Christian? How would you answer? They said, what's it like to be a Christian? Would you say, well, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful. All your sins are forgiven. Past, present, future. You're clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ might be how you, you'd answer. Maybe you'd say, well, uh, I, I'm, I know that because I'm a Christian, I'm a child of God. I have an inheritance in heaven. Um, I, I've been f- set free from, from sin. I have this new heart that wants to, to please God. I have this, this wonderful hope in heaven. You, you could say all kinds of things about the riches of the gospel. Maybe, though, maybe you'd also say, to be honest... It's really hard being a Christian. Um, to be a Christian is to be living between the promise and the fulfillment. It's to have received God's promise, but you're still waiting for the fulfillment of that promise to come. You're in between two worlds, between the already and the not yet. To be a Christian is to be humbled and lowly and, and to be growing more and more aware of my, my weakness. That's also part of what it is to be a Christian. We saw last week in the passage just before this in Romans chapter 8 that Paul compares our experience of waiting for the fulfillment, this in-between time of the already and the not yet, in-between those things. Paul compares the experience that we go through to a woman being in labor. There's the wonderful promise of the baby coming, but there's the agony of the, the pain of labor and the wait right now. The, the wonderful promise of being a Christian, of the joy that's ahead of us, the fulfillment that's coming. And it's almost here. But the pain of the present as we wait. Paul says that to be a Christian is to be sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Paul has made it clear in, this own, in, our, in our text here in Romans 8 that if we are going to be glorified with Christ, first we must suffer with Christ. And this raises two questions. The first question, if we're going to suffer with Christ before we're glorified with Christ, the first question is, is it worth it? Is it, is it worth it to, to suffer with Him compared with the glory that's coming? We saw that last week in, in Romans chapter 8. And Paul's answer is a resounding Yes. It's more than worth it. It's not worth comparing. You put put the sufferings of this present age in one side of the scales. You put the glory that's coming in the other side of the set of scales, and there's no comparison at all. The glory that's coming far outweighs the suffering. But there's another question. Not just is it worth it, but will I make it? Will I make it? You might tell me, that crossing the finish line of a marathon is worth it. But that doesn't mean that I can make it across the finish line. You see, um, I might not have what it takes, right? And the Christian life. Okay, Paul, so it's worth it. The sufferings of the here and now, they're worth it for the glory that's coming, but I don't know if I have what it takes to get there. I don't know. The world is against me. My sinful flesh is against me. Satan's against me. How can I be sure? How can I persevere? How can can I make it through this life of suffering and union with Christ? God gives the answer in this passage here tonight that yes, you can make it. Not just you can make it, you cannot fail to make it. You will persevere if you are His. And the answer that He gives us as to how we can make it is Himself. Isn't that always the answer with the Lord? Himself? That He has given us His Holy Spirit, and because the Holy Spirit is our helper, we will not fail to reach the heavenly reward that's ahead of us. That's the point this this night. Um, We'll unpack this under three points here. Uh, The first one in verse 26 is this. The Spirit helps us. In our weakness, the Spirit helps us. In our weakness, verse twenty-six. The first thing to see in the text is that Paul puts this heading on the Christian life of weakness. Right when he says in verse twenty-six, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He doesn't mean you know those those few times in your life when you're weak and you need some help. Then the Holy Spirit comes in, helps you, fixes it up, and goes on. Um, no, he means when the weakness is, is the category that the Christian life falls under. Uh, to be a Christian is to be learning weakness. is to be growing in your understanding of how weak you are, of how insufficient you are. And we need to learn to see our lives through this lens, brothers and sisters. My life is weakness. Growing and understanding that, that I am weak in that weakness, he is strong. Um, we, we don't like to be weak. We don't like to admit that we are weak. Uh, we, we hate that. We want to have what it takes in ourselves. But that we don't. Um, we don't. J.F. Packer has a little book. And the title is Weakness is the Way. Um, haven't read the book, but it's a great title. Weakness is the Way is the way I know that in the book he's expounding on 2nd Corinthians where Paul writes so much of his weakness for God's strength. So if you're feeling weak as a Christian, if you're at a place of feeling incapable and insufficient as a Christian, well, that's exactly what you should be feeling. That's where God has you. If you're not feeling weak in yourself as a Christian, then you should take a careful look and and, and, and and pray that God would show you your weakness. So this is, this is what we need to see about our lives. It's what Paul is telling us here in verse 26. The Christian life is weakness. But that's only half of the picture here, isn't it? Um, we also need to see that it's in our weakness that the Spirit helps us. Isn't that interesting? In the weakness? Not... Out of the weakness, not in spite of the weakness, not removing us from the weakness, but in the weakness, he helps us. Paul's words come to mind, don't they? 2 Corinthians 12.10 When I am weak, then I am strong. That's spiritual strength begins with feeling your weakness and incompetence and turning to depend on God and only on God. So learn to see your life through through the lens. Weakness, but the strength of God there, in that weakness, at work in me through that that weakness. Because the Holy Spirit is my helper. What does it mean for us that the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us in our weakness? It means that God Himself, God Himself, is your helper. We see this, Psalm 54, verse 4 says this, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Psalm 118, verse 7, something very similar. The Lord is on my side as my helper. The Lord He's right here beside me, helping me, strengthening me, sustaining me. Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. In trouble. The Holy Spirit is that for the Christian. He was there at the beginning by his almighty power, bringing all things into existence. And now he's here in the believer's own heart, helping, strengthening, sustaining with you. Loved ones, his, his help for you is Constant doesn't lapse. He's he's there with you constantly, not just in the mountaintop experience of that good good time in the Christian life that you had, not not just in a a wonderful worship service that you experienced, but He's there in your weakness, caring for you, sustaining you, and strengthening you. Always. John 14, verse 6, our Lord Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Forever. He's with us. And he's with you as the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit's your helper. He's always with you. And he's with you as the Spirit of Christ. Um. In this chapter, back in verse 9, uh, Paul identifies the Spirit for us as the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and it's a, that's an important thing to keep in mind, that the Spirit's the one who filled Christ during his earthly ministry. That means that the Spirit was the one who was Christ's helper. He was ever-present with Christ through his ministry. He was the one who raised Christ from the dead, who, who gave Christ the power to resist temptation, Christ the, 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 the strength to continue faithfully on in the calling that God had given him and raised him up from the dead. He is the one who is with us. This is the dynamic of the Christian life. I am weak, always and I'm growing and knowing my weakness, and the Spirit of Christ is always, always there, His strength bearing me up. There's a wonderful picture of this in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32, verse 11. There's this wonderful picture of how God, by His Spirit, brings the people of Israel up out of Egypt and through the wilderness to the promised land. It compares. Uh, compares the spirit there to a mother eagle hovering over its young. It says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided them. So the Lord is for the church. So He is for us. He's, he's, He's taking us to glory all the way heavenward, through the wilderness. And loved ones, we can be sure of it. And, and, and the weaker you feel, the, the more you are aware of your fragility and your insufficiency, the more sure you should be that He's with you. He helps us in our weakness. Are you weak? And He's with you. You know He's with you. He helps us. How does He help us? Second point, the Spirit intercedes for us. Verses 26 and 27 lay this out. Um, The the, the Spirit helps us by interceding for us. Um, God, the Holy Spirit, is praying for you. That's a tremendous thought. God, the Holy Spirit... Is praying for you. Paul says, verse 26, We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for the saints with groanings which cannot be uttered. Paul's continuing to examine our weakness, isn't he? He, he says we don't know what to pray for as we ought. He's looking at uh, prayer in the Christian life. Prayer is the epitome of weakness. It's, um, by definition, prayer is, is the expression of our helplessness. Uh, it's the acknowledgement, I can't fix this, I can't save myself, I can't change this, God, I need you to do it. And, and as, as, as as Paul is looking at our praying, he said, sometimes we're even too weak to know what to pray for. Our weakness even extends so that we're too weak even to be weak, that we're weak in our, in our praying. We don't even know what to pray for, those seasons in the Christian life where you're just bewildered by the providence of God. Just Just... What are you doing, Lord? And what do you want me to do? How do I pray? Even the Apostle Paul apparently had that experience. Didn't know what to pray for, as we are. But in all that weakness, the Spirit's praying for us. Verse 26 tells us how he prays. tells us that he prays with groanings which cannot be uttered, groanings that are too deep for words, groanings that are inexpressible. These are something that go beyond the reach of human language to describe. Um, we've already seen groanings a few times in the, in the chapter here. Uh, the first is in verse, uh, verse 22, where we're told the whole creation is groaning under the pains of childbirth until now. Uh, as, as God prepares for the new creation. Verse 23 tells us that as God's spirit-filled children, we are groaning as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then in verse 26, Paul adds to this list of groaning. and says also the spirit, as he prays for us, groans. The spirit groans. Um, How do we understand that? What does it mean that the Spirit is praying for me with groanings too deep for words? I think it means that the Spirit so fills the believer that he takes our groans and he joins his own voice to them and he brings them before the Father. Think about the relationship that we've, we've been seeing all throughout this chapter between the Christian and, the, and, this, and this Holy Spirit. Over and over, the chapter describes the Christian life as a life that's in the Spirit, under the Spirit, by the Spirit. Right? To be a Christian is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if the whole of our lives as Christians is living in the Spirit, then surely our praying, our groaning, crying out to God, Abba, Father, hear us, When we're at our weakest and most bewildered, most perplexed and and troubled, there surely the Spirit is with us. And he's so close with us, he joins his voice to ours and he groans out to God with us. His groaning is not something that we do. It's not something we hear. This isn't some mystical spiritual experience that we ourselves can... It's not like we we hear the Spirit praying with us audibly in any kind of way. But we can have this assurance that God hears the Spirit praying and groaning and crying out to Him on our behalf. That when I'm groaning, as a child of God filled with the Spirit, when I'm groaning under the weight of, of, of the sufferings right now, then the spirit is groaning before the Lord as well for me, praying on my behalf. And he's praying that God would accomplish his purpose for us. Brothers, this is such a precious promise because when we're at our weakest, when we're we're at our lowest, um, we're often tempted to think God is, is far away, that he's oblivious to what I'm going through, or he is not able to do anything about what I'm going through, or he just doesn't care about what I'm going through. But the promise here is that God himself and his spirit is with us, in the groaning, praying with us, praying for us. Now, we're not told this explicitly in Scripture, but I'm confident that it is the case that this is exactly what was going on in the experience of our Lord Jesus Christ at his lowest and his weakest, when he's there in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and he's groaning, he's crying out to God, sweating drops of blood on the ground, or when he's there on the cross and he's crying out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is not the Spirit groaning with him? Is not the Spirit praying for Him, interceding for Him, never leaving Him, but strengthening Him even through that as He prays for Him? And loved ones, in the same way, He is with us, at our weakest and our lowest, praying for us. What is He praying for? He's praying that God will fulfill His purpose for us. And we see that purpose unfolded. In verses 28 through 30, and this is our third point, um, that uh, the Spirit in us guarantees that all things work together for our good. Uh, Verse 28 introduces us, shows us the, the scope, the comprehensive scope of God's purpose for us. It says this, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his Purpose. A couple things we should notice as qualifications uh, to, the, to the promise here. Number one, it's for the elect. It's for those who love God and are called by God for his purpose. Um, so some people would say that this is just the idea, everything will work out okay in the end, or um, uh, all right, uh, everything's going to be all right for, for, for everybody. That's not the promise here. This promise is for God's people. That's clear. Second qualification, um, the good that all things are working towards is not necessarily in this life, but it's in our heavenly reward. Paul's not saying every cloud has a silver lining. Just look for the good in every situation. He's saying, no, there is an eternal good ahead of you, and God is orchestrating everything to that end. With those things being said, let's look at the scope of God's promise here in verse 28. All things work together for good, he says. All things means all things. Everything in the Christian life is, is for our good in Christ. The things you experience as blessings, they're for your good. The things you experience as trials are for your good. From the little frustrations, I remember one time stubbing my toe and thinking, Lord, how could this be for my good? But even in all the, every little frustration, frustration of our lives. It's for our good. He's, he's working all of it for his glory. Uh, in, in the big things, right? In, in, in the, in, in the great—the griefs and the, the, the great trials of, of life, God is working all for his good. He's not, and he's not doing it like a master chess player who uses the opponent's best moves against them, um, but who's really just trying to make the best of bad situations. But he's doing it as the author of the story as the one who's written, who decreed everything that will come to pass, working all things by His power for for our good. Even sin. He works for our good. God does not approve of sin, or He's not the author of sin, but this all things that He works includes human sinfulness. Think of the story of Joseph and his brothers in Genesis. They sin against Him. They sell him into slavery. Um, and Joseph says, at the end of it all, you meant evil against me. God meant good. God, by his sovereign power, is able even to work sin to good, not just as making the best of a bad situation, but the sin itself is integral to God's plan to accomplish his purpose. Uh, we see this most obviously in, in Christ's own crucifixion and death. Surely, that is the greatest sin ever committed. And yet it is the centerpiece of God's plan and purpose to redeem his people. God ordains that the the worst sin serves the greatest good of his people and his glory. So surely he can work all things in our lives, even the sin in our own lives that he lets linger Surely he's even using that somehow for his glory and for our good. These are precious things. Do you know them? Notice that Paul, as he's telling us this, God works all things for good. All things. Um, He doesn't say, now we hope that all things work together for good, he doesn't say, um, we believe all things will work together for good. What does he say? Verse 28, the start of the verse. And we know. That is the language of complete confidence, of of fact. Paul knows it as a fact that every single thing in his life, all the suffering, all the difficulty, everything in his life is for his good. he knows it. Do you know it? How do we come to know this? How can we know it as a fact? Verses 29 and 30 go on to explain this for us. We begin in verse 29. We're told this, Whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be called the firstborn among many brethren. So you know all things will work together for your good. You know it. Why, Paul? Well, because God foreknew you. He knew you. He loved you from before the foundation of the world. Behind your whole life, behind creation and history, is the everlasting love of God for you. Second, he says, we know this. We know it's going to work for our good because God has predestined us. Out of his foreknowing love of us, he predestined us, he elected us to be like Jesus, to be completely like Jesus. Soul made holy, body resurrected like Jesus, made like Jesus, body and soul. He says here that Jesus' mission is to be the firstborn of many brothers. Jesus didn't do all that he did just for himself. He did it for his people. So as Paul looks at the, the plan of God, the foreknowing love of God, and then as he looks at the predestining call of God, and, and as he looks at Christ himself and all that God has accomplished in Christ in his life, death, resurrection, he says, of course we know God will work all things for our good because he's the firstborn of many brothers. He, is, he has received his, his reward and, and he's entered into glory surely also. All those who are in Christ will will share in God's glory. The third thing he then points us to uh, to to be the foundation for our knowing that all things work for good is the sovereign, eternal decree of God, which has now entered into history and moves in to, to our own our own lives, and, and then calls us out of our sin. Um, he, he points us to how. Our, our lives uh, as Christians are the result of what God has done. He points us to God's effectual call on us that, that he, he comes, God comes and gives us faith, and then He justifies us. He forgives our sins, imputes Christ's righteousness to us, and then that He glorifies all those that He has justified. And, and, and Paul says this is also certain. He puts it in the past tense it's been done, called, justified, Glorify. Paul is laying out all these things that God has done for us in Christ to say you can know. You can know because of what God has done in Christ for you. All things will work for your good. What Paul lays out here in verse 30 is often called the, the golden chain. These uh, uh, predestination and, and calling and, and, and justification and glory are like links in this chain which can't be broken, that if God has begun this work, He'll finish it. And there, there's, there's merit to, to thinking about it that way. But I, I think a, a perhaps better way to, be, to think about it is that they're facets of a diamond, that they're all part of a whole salvation, not, not, not discrete links that intersect with each other that we're presented with here, but facets of, of one whole complete salvation with many sides and faces. Um, And and Paul is saying. Dear Christian, you have the diamond. You have the whole diamond. With all its facets, the diamond is Jesus Christ. Justified for you. uh, Glorified for you. And if you have Jesus Christ through the spirit, you have the whole salvation. God doesn't chop up salvation's benefits and ship them off one by one. He gives us the whole Christ, and so as Paul is, is, is presenting us with this picture, he's saying you have, you have salvation, the whole of it. You, you don't. You, it's not all brought to its fulfillment yet, but it's all yours, and it's all guaranteed to you because you have the Spirit of Christ, who is the down payment of it. Your whole salvation. And he maps this out to drive the point home that it's all because of the sovereign grace of God for us. That from, from predestination to glory, God has planned it. God by His grace has done it. He has sent His Son to accomplish it and He's poured out His Spirit to apply it. And so how can we not know that all things work together for good. For that good, He has given us Christ. He's given us the Spirit. How can we not know that indeed we will reach glory? This is what um, th- this is what our assurance is over against um, all the temptations to believe otherwise, based on our experience. And this is where we need to fix our eyes. And this is what the Spirit is praying that God would do for us. And this is indeed what God promises to do. I want to close by going back to the question that we started with. Will you make it? Can you persevere through the suffering, through the weakness, through the humility of the Christian life? Um, Can you make it? The answer, of course, is no. Not on your own but yes, because you have the Spirit. He's your helper. He's praying for you. He is with you. He has given you union with the whole Christ and all His benefits. And what God has begun, He will finish. He will indeed work all things, loved ones, for your good. He cannot do otherwise. He's already done it, in a sense. All that's left is for us to enter into the full enjoyment of it. Trust these promises. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us in our Lord Jesus. Not an ounce of your mercy do we deserve, but what an ocean you have given us in Christ. We thank you for your word and your promises to us in in our Lord Jesus. We thank you that you, our Holy Spirit, are with us praying for us and strengthening us to the end. We pray that you would indeed do all that you've promised to do. Strengthen us in our weakness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.